Welcome to New Realities. My name is Alan Steinfeld, and if you've been listening to this program over the last few years, you know it's about a transformation that's happening in the consciousness of our culture and in the world, and tonight we'll be addressing one of the subjects that I feel is really key to understanding transformation in general and how that has taken place. Uh, in the cultures around the world, it's the topic of alchemy, and I'll be talking to Teresa Ibis and uh, Dennis William Houck, and they're putting on the Alchemy Conference that's happening at the Los Angeles Convention Center, October 23rd to the 25th, and you can look at their website, alchemyconference.com. I'm on the phone right now with Teresa Ibis, who's a physicist, and she we're going to talk about the way alchemy and physics really merge together. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Alan. Thanks for, for being a guest. Yes, I mean, the name of the show is New Realities because I feel like we are opening up to a new way of understanding things like alchemy. It's no longer something that's um, been um, pushed away. It doesn't have to be hidden. It, it can be out in the open and and can you talk about then the way quantum physics is a is another expression of alchemy in a sense? Yeah, let's just dive in. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as we have been becoming more and more aware of the possibilities that quantum physics is presenting us with as a a whole new paradigm and a whole new way of looking at this this world and this universe that we live in, uh, people's consciousness and people's awareness has been shifting to, wow, you know, maybe maybe my view as an observer of this and as a participant in this world does make a difference. You know, maybe it's not just a mechanistic, deterministic world that we live in. Like, our consciousness has a role to play. And... Um, so people are really starting to open up to this idea. Well, it turns out that the ancient science and art that alchemy is, which has been on the planet for thousands of years, has always had this view. They have always mm. said our consciousness is an integral piece of the equation, that the observer and the observed or in the alchemical uh, way of talking about it, they would say that the, the alchemist and their their object or their experiment are intimately connected and entangled, and you can't mm. separate them. That the state of mind of the alchemist has all this uh, influence at a subtle level on the results that they're going to see in the world. So the aspect of quantum physics that you're really saying that applies to consciousness is that the observer does affect the experiment. Is that absolutely? And it's it, you know there's the there's step one, which is the sighting of the observer effect, which is a, mm -hmm. a really important piece of quantum mechanics. But can you actually explain um, like what experiments have shown that to be absolutely true? 
Uh, well, there's it, it's it's not quite that simple. So you have, for example, it really depends on how the uh, scientist decides to set up their experiment. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, quantum mechanics, it says that uh, reality can either be seen as a particle, mm-hmm. as solid matter, or as a waveform, as energy. And so they talk about this wave-particle duality. And mm-hmm. whether we see something as a particle or we see it as a wave, it really depends on how we choose to observe it. So, for example, there have been scientific experiments that that were looking at electrons, and mm-hmm. usually it's um, like a double slit experiment. If you were to poke two holes in a, a screen and then shine particles through that, you know, you would think that particle would choose to go either through one hole or the other because a particle mm-hmm. is supposed to be point-like. And, mm-hmm. But what they found was they would actually get an interference pattern saying that, no, that particle wasn't coming through as a particle. It was coming through as a wave of energy mm-hmm. uh, that really was very similar to what it would look like if light, which we mm-hmm. know is to be a wave, were shining through that double slit experiment. But then right. they can also do experiments with light where they would expect to see it showing up as a wave of energy, and then they would find out, no, it's a particle, (laughs) that they can Mm -hmm. get single counts of um, photons, they call them. And so it really has to do with how the experimenter chooses to set up their experiment. Right right there, from the beginning, they determine the state. I see. So, okay, so that's the first part is that there's... um, um, a change in the effects of the reality of the experiment because of the observer. And they said there was another part to this understanding of quantum physics. Well, there's many people these days who are um, using uh, quantum mechanics and citing quantum mechanics for being one way that we can start to bridge this realm of consciousness and uh, spirituality into science. Right, so we have mm-hmm. the Tao of physics, and we have what the bleep do we know, and we have these people who are saying, you know, it really is about your consciousness, and that's true. Um, you have the secret and the law of attraction and all these things that, that are really becoming these new paradigms right now for people to mm-hmm. see that how they believe and what they choose to focus on is going to determine the reality that they experience. But... Things like the law of attraction and the power of intention is really just step one. There are many, many more steps to getting from the power of your consciousness to the final result and getting that final result to match the ideal vision or to match the highest potential that it could have. Well, let's go. What are some of these other steps? Because I always thought there was more to it than just... I mean, intention is important. Yes, intention is very important, but there are there's there's a process, and this is exactly where the deeper teachings of alchemy come in. Uh, in alchemy, they talk about there being seven steps to the process of transformation, or from mm-hmm. changing one thing into another thing, or from taking something that is at a uh, a level that has impurities or imbalances or whatever and transforming it into something that is more perfected. Mm-hmm. And so they talk about there being at least seven steps uh, which go through a couple different phases to get from that place of, you know, 
Oh, that's right. right. There's sublimation. There's all these things where, and then that's calcination. Right. Yeah. There's there's these big terms, but in reality, we all go through this process naturally. We're just usually not aware of it. And Mm -hmm. alchemy has has you know over time has studied that natural process, and they've come to. Okay, well, this is the pattern. We see this pattern repeated so many different times and, you know, in different ways and in different situations, but it's always the same pattern. Mm-hmm. And when we understand that pattern and we become conscious and aware of that and what those steps are, then we can step in as a more active participant mm-hmm. to elicit that transformation process along and indeed to speed it up by engaging our own consciousness, our own will, and our own um, ability to create in the world and to uh, work with nature to accelerate evolution rather than to just sort of be at the effect or rather than to um, not be really conscious of what's going on. That's really what alchemy is all about. The al- alchemy, then, you're saying, and I have studied it, and um, is the way to use the world to evolve our own mind, our own awareness. So we're using nature to become more aware of who we are as a, as a spiritual entity, would you say? I think it works mm-hmm. both ways. Um, okay. Alchemy has, has many different forms that it has taken on. Uh, there's the inner alchemy, which is kind of what you're talking about right now, which is how can right. we uh, transform on the inner planes and how can we use our outer world as a tool for mm-hmm. creating those inner transformations as well as other things that we can create just within our own self to elicit the transformation and to perfect our mind and perfect our own consciousness and, and our body and all of these things. Right, that's inner alchemy, the outer alchemy where we turn lead into gold. Is that what you're... <laughs> right, where we turn lead into gold. is Lead, lead into gold, uh, some people can take that in a literal way, and um, but typically it's more a metaphorical process of lead being the density or the impurities or the toxins that arise in something um, that is in a raw state and gold being a perfected state. And so the outer alchemy or the practical alchemy is to learn how to transform something in nature or in the world, in the outer world, by um, taking it through the various stages and by also harnessing subtle energies to really create like a synergy that takes it beyond what its natural state is. Well, what kind of things are you talking about in the outer world? Uh, Well, there's... For example, we could take uh, a herb and we can go and gather some herbs from nature and we would start with them in their raw plant form and then we would perform various uh, processes on those herbs and we would transform it into a very powerful uh, elixir or um, tincture that can be taken internally to create healing in the body, to detoxify the body, or to create uh, heightened spiritual awareness, or, you know, there's mm-hmm. basically, depending on how you take it through the process and which herbs you start with, it will have a different effect. 
And this mm-hmm. is actually the origins of modern pharmacology. Uh, but in modern pharmacology, they've diverged away from harnessing the subtle energies and recognizing the wholeness of the plant itself, and they've just tried to isolate different parts out, and they've they've lost all the the life energy that uh, right. harnesses. That was called the lesser the lesser work or the minor work, um, from what I've studied. Plant alchemy. Plant alchemy. Lesser work. And you can do the same in the greater work. They would work with minerals and metals uh, and, again, take raw material uh, through the various stages of transformation to create a really healing uh, elixir, again, or stone. Um, and so typically it's taking something from its raw state into a, a more perfected state. But well, I, there's not just that, right? We can take right. alchemy. And we can apply it to the same pattern. You can apply it to relationships and how to perfect relationships. You can apply it to um, society. You can apply it to, you know, our economic, uh, any kind of system or structure or organization or business that we have out there. We can take the same pattern and the same awareness and apply it to that particular system to perfect it to the next level. Right. Someone showed it as an aspect of creativity, these seven levels that exist in alchemy. Um, but, but I am interested in the fact that there were alchemists that were really trying, and maybe we'll talk to Dennis about that, that were really attempting to transform metal into gold. But, but through that, the process of transforming themselves, you see, like what you said in the beginning, it's a state of mind. So in the process of this, chemical and alchemical transmutation, something happened to the observer in that attempt. And that was what was really called the great work, I feel. Um, The the transformation of oneself through the process of of, of, of burning and cooking and burying these metals with all these concoctions at certain times of the year and certain times of the day. And... um, Something happened to someone who was so focused in that that their consciousness shifted to a higher level. Right. Well, it's similar to, again, it's that entanglement. Like, number one, the alchemist sees that their consciousness and their state of mind and emotion has an impact on the object that they're working on, but likewise... If it is intimately, if they're not separate, if they're entangled together, they're one and the same thing, whatever mm-hmm. operation the alchemist performs on that object, it, he's performing it on himself too. And wow. so, yeah, like, just like you said, if they, if they burn, you know, this plant to crisp, for example, it's like they're burning themselves. And, and they create by, just by the awareness that they are not separate from mm-hmm. what they are working on. They create this intimacy with their experiment, with their object. And, you know, in the end, the object is themselves. So it becomes mm-hmm. this sort of symbiotic relationship, this interconnected dynamic between the observer and the observed. Uh, and so, you know, I appreciate that, and that's a great understanding, and I, I think that really. Um, opens people's minds to the power of alchemy 
because I think there were true alchemists that were really going for the major work, and because they were entangled and having made or transformed something into gold, that gold um, lifted that person to a higher spiritual awareness. This is what I I get from the yeah. books I've read. Absolutely, it's it's so spiritualized that just uh, just like one drop of an elixir, for example, will just kind of send your consciousness into an altered state. Uh, mm. Have you had those elixirs? I've had some of the uh, herbal elixirs, and I've created some of the herbal elixirs. I haven't gotten into working with the metals or the minerals yet, but uh, I have heard stories of, you know, real transmutations of lead even, lead into gold that have happened uh, more so in India and in in the East, because in the East there's far more transparency. There is never a need to hide or veil the alchemical work because it was just more open and accepted in their spiritual traditions out there. Whereas in the Western society, there was a lot of um, fear that got created um, Mm. around the religious organizations and the work that the alchemists were doing. And so then they ended up having to hide and create a lot of obscurity around their work just to protect themselves and the power of that knowledge. I know, it's too bad, because there were great schools of alchemy in Prague and um, all through the Middle Ages. Have you read the book, The Red Lion? Mm-mm, not that particular. Oh, no. that's an amazing book about the history of alchemy in the Middle Ages. Yeah. And it's about an initiate who who starts from a very low level of consciousness but is obsessed with this alchemical formula, and he, tr- he traces development through lifetimes until he becomes the Magnus, you know, the, the, the great magician. Wow. And sounds, it's a great, like a good one. It's a great overview. So, but what then do you feel um, is the ultimate goal of the alchemist? I mean, what do you want as, study, as an alchemist? What, what would you like to achieve? Well, I, I would like to see, number one, a revival of alchemy in modern thought. I think that we're on the verge of that. Um, and I think that with the tools and the awareness and the knowledge and understanding that alchemy can bring to people, we can finally start to take those steps to, at a much more practical level, bridge our modern scientific and technological way of working with the spiritual and consciousness movement so that we can take it out of the theory realm and into practicality and applicability uh, in many of our societies. So I think that, you know, alchemy, one thing that happens is that throughout history you can look and see that there's this, there's something that they call the underground river or stream where there's this body of knowledge and tools and understanding and wisdom that has flowed through history. And sometimes it's underground and it's submerged and other times it comes up to the surface for anybody mm-hmm. to be able to partake of that wisdom. And mm-hmm. and when you look at that throughout history, all those times when that knowledge, and that includes stuff like alchemy and Kabbalah and different you know, metaphysics and initiations mm-hmm. and, and mystery school traditions, when they surface, we enter into a time of like a renaissance period, <laughs> period mm-hmm. or a golden age or an, an age of enlightenment. And whenever they submerge and go underground again, we enter into a time of, like, darkness and suppression or, or just ignorance. 
And so these things are coming out again, and and it is like we're right at the precipice of a great shift into the next age of enlightenment or age of, of, you know, next great forward leap in consciousness. But I think that has to take place also at a real practical level within our systems and within our whole paradigm of how we're approaching life. So I really think that alchemy can help us with that. Well, that's why I think your conference is so exciting. I have just interviewed recently Nassim Harameen and his understanding of black holes and the transfer and the unification of physics, uh, quantum physics, and Einstein's relativity. I mean, he has some real solid answers. Yeah. That are, and have you met him? Have you talked to him? I have not, but I am very excited to have him uh, speaking oh. at the conference and to directly hear about his theories. Oh, he is truly a genius. I could see him. I mean, if he can do what he says he can do with black hole technology, I think it would be, it'll change life on planet Earth, you know? Mm-hmm. The little bit that I've read of, of some of his work, I definitely think that he's, he's onto something, and I'm very excited to hear some more about it. So, yeah, we have a, a fantastic lineup of, of speakers for the Alchemy Conference, and, and that is, you know, really the goal is to bring that awareness and to show people and to reintroduce alchemy to the modern world in a way that they see, like, there's so many different ways that alchemy is already being applied uh, to help us transform and take that next great leap in our in our paradigms and in our ways of interacting with each other and in the ways that we're setting up our systems and our structures in this world and, and so forth. And we have people like scientists like Nassim and uh, Don Estes and myself, and we have uh, Dr. Emoto coming. And mm-hmm. then we also have more of the spiritual alchemists like um, Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of The Four Agreements. Oh, right. I just talked to him recently. Yes, he's a beautiful guy. Yeah, and with the tech teachings. And then we have Montak Chia, who's bringing in the Taoist inner inner alchemy teachings. That is a beautiful, uh, yeah, the male, female, the fire and water. It's very alchemical. Actually, that's something I also wanted to address, the fact that Alchemy can be applied to the body and to health and the fact that our bodies are alchemical furnaces. We're always transmuting in our bodies, I feel, one element into another. Yeah. And, and that's not recognized by science. Wow, well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, they, in science they just make it this kind of biochemical machine, right? Whereas... Mm-hmm. It, when you when you really look at it, it's like okay, it might be you might be able to talk about some of it in terms of biochemistry, but there's a whole energetics that happens to it as well. I mean, the quality of the food you eat is not just about you know the the material that's in it; it's also about the energy that went into preparing that food, for example. Right. And and you know your own state of mind when you consume the food. And, I mean, there's all these energetics that go into it and. And then the things that we expose ourselves to is uh, we're in a very toxic environment these days, mm-hmm. and, and alchemy is very much about giving us uh, remedies for eliminating those toxins out of the body and taking us into a more enlightened state, not just mentally and spiritually, but physically as well, so that the physical body can fully integrate and utilize the energies that it has at its disposal without being bogged down by all the toxins mm-hmm. and all of the, you know, the 
bad stuff we might consume. Well, I want to ask you a question. As a physicist, do you feel that the we're moving, we and the Earth are moving to a higher frequency, a higher vibration through evolution? Or? Um, I think that there's a lot of evidence for that, that there is, uh, for example, just looking at the vibrational energy of, of the Earth itself and the magnetic uh, field of the Earth, it's vibrational frequency is increasing it's called the Schumann resonance and it's been mm -hmm. increasing and fluctuating a lot uh, mm -hmm. lately and, and it's going to a higher uh, vibrational state you also see stuff for example in brainwave mapping of um, people that especially in some of the younger generations now we're starting to reach into brainwave frequencies in um, much higher range that they're calling gamma waves that were never really seen before the 80s. And now all of a sudden they're being seen consistently within the brain. What does that mean, though, that we're seeing uh, in The gamma frequencies, uh, they have shown the, that the people who are, who are of older generations that are able to manifest these brainwave frequencies in the gamma are like the meditators from the Dalai Lama, mm. for example, going into the compassion meditation. And when they, when they move into that place of a unified mind and heart and are sending out this vibration of compassion, that's when they read these higher frequencies uh, in their brainwave uh, mapping. And, but some of the kids who are coming through today just naturally have that. It's like this unified mind-heart where we've been operating with it so separate. You know, the, the mind and the emotions have been separated from the logic and the reason and the functioning of the mind, at least in the Western society, whereas we're now moving into a time where it's like, no, it's not about separating that anymore. It's about uniting and letting the mm. heart guide our thoughts and guide our mind and, uh, you know, move mm. more into compassionate action in the world. And gosh, if everybody was in compassionate action in this world, we would... <laughs> we We'd would. have a beautiful world. Exactly. <laughs> but it seems like as you're talking, I'm getting the feeling like every... A lot of things seem to be lining up. So the human residence of the Earth is increasing and people are um, opening up brainwaves to higher states, higher frequencies, and, and the sun itself is coming into alignment with the galactic century, you know, the whole 2012 mm -hmm. thing. And we're being prepared for a great shift um, where we actually have been in an alchemical process as a civilization, it seems like. As a and, yeah, everything. Right? So we're about to emerge from that calcified state or whatever state and stage of alchemy we're in to, to awaken, I think, to, to a whole new humanity. Yeah, I think personally that we've been at the, um, we've been going through many of this, you know, there's cycles within cycles in that right. uh, alchemical process. And, you know, in, in some ways we're all, like, I, I think just about everybody I've talked to has really noticed how time is speeding up and how what we're putting out there is coming back really fast. And it's almost like there's this karmic cleansing happening right now. Uh, mm -hmm. cleansing the karma from our um, ancestors and from our 
uh, you know, forefathers and, and how our society's been set up, and it's just everything is kind of being purged at the moment. It's creating what seems like a crisis, but it's really a healing crisis. And, you know, great chaos precedes great growth sometimes, and I think we're at that moment of, in some ways, it's like the dark night of the soul for humanity, uh, where it's really the fermentation stage. Like, we're in a maturing, but there's the final death needs to happen of, of these pieces of our society and our, and our way of life on this earth that are not working. They need to die in order for us to leap up to that next, uh, more refined state of how we're going to operate in the world and with each other. And so I think that we're beyond calcination and we're kind of in the next death phase. Um, well, and they are dying, the economic system, political systems. I think they are in their last throes and they are um, dissolving and changing. They can't exist in the same way that they have existed. Exactly. So we, we are seeing, but you talk more like a mystic than a physicist. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I'm kind of, I'm a mystic by nature and a physicist by uh, vocation and training. <laughs> but how do you, how do you translate what you've just said as far as the spiritual awareness into physics, into solids? How do you talk to your physicist friends about these things, um, or do you know? Yeah, that's that's the challenge. Uh, a lot of the today's scientists and um, you know, especially in mainstream science, they, they're not really interested in things that fall outside of the realm of hardcore experimental testability. And if you can't test it, prove it, then, you know, it, it doesn't belong in science is, is kind of how they view things. And so, the, and then there's also culture. There's a culture that was set up in science that, really kind of shut the door on any kind of spiritual conversations. Mm-hmm. And so if, if what was that culture? What did, they, what did those scientists believe to be true to shut the door? I think it was political. I think it came, you know, goes back to maybe the time when there was a lot of struggles happening between uh, the religious um, power structure uh, being threatened by scientific advancement during and during that age of enlightenment, there was a separation that happened, where the the scientists said we you know we see that there's a way to have deeper understanding of how nature works and how the world works, and we want to investigate that and we want to have autonomy and, and freedom and independence to be able to do that without having the doctrine of religion. Um, trying to shut us up. And so they created a, a separation there to kind of let, let spiritual matters be, you know, the, in the hands of the church, but we want to have an understanding of the world. And mm. they kind of had to create that separation in order to get their freedom. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, just as you're saying, I'm thinking alchemy is somewhere between those two things because it is a spiritual practice, but it's also very much a science. Exactly, exactly. And this is why I personally am so uh, driven to help bring alchemy back out to the to the world because it is exactly the place where we can walk the middle ground again, where we can mm. walk that middle path and bridge between the practical and the hardcore science, laboratory work and all of it, and yet still have an awareness of consciousness and subtle energy and spirituality and 
and you know the the more diviner side of life and bring the two together to meet in the middle uh, well i totally agree i mean because i was i've always been fascinated and drawn to alchemy i always knew it was a truth i always knew that there's something that can be changed into something else because it's everywhere around us all the time and every day, every minute, in our bodies, in our minds, in the yeah, world. Our bodies and the stars and the side of, inside the earth, it happens everywhere. Well, sure, that's the only reason there are all these elements, because alchemical transformations have happened. Exactly. I mean, uh, hydrogen became everything, if you want to look at it from that point of view. Well, so why don't we, well, why don't we get Dennis William Houck on the line, and why don't you just tell people a little bit about him, and maybe okay. the Seth can get him on the line. Yes. Okay, great. Well, Dennis is, is one of my favorite alchemists. He actually, uh, he's the author of one of the first books I read on alchemy that just turned me on to this whole field, uh, coming from, you know, more science and having a spiritual background. And, and when I read his book on the Emerald Tablet, it was like mm-hmm. a whole new world opened up to me. And he's just mm-hmm. such a, he's a, a a very gifted writer and author and has been able to present alchemy, its history, and how we can apply it internally and, and at a personal level uh, to create those transformations within. He's been able to really write just some fantastic books that the layperson can understand and really uh, get a much clearer sense of what alchemy is about. Um, right. when, I first, when I first learned about or heard about alchemy, I had the you know impression of alchemy is just about turning you know pseudoscientists of the Middle Ages trying to turn lead into gold, and um, and I, I wanted nothing to do with it as a scientist. But mm-hmm. then when I read Dennis's book, his first one that turned me on, it I realized like no, that's not what alchemy is at all. I mean, it's this amazing understanding of how transformation happens and how we can apply that both within ourselves and in our world and so right well, is he on, Dennis are you on the line yes I am oh thank yes thanks for uh, joining us here I have uh, Teresa with us and together you're created this conference this alchemical alchemy conference that's happening in Los Angeles October what is it 23rd to the 25th but I'm interested in what you have to say about the the origins of alchemy, especially the emerald tablets, which which seems like um, the very beginning of the alchemical tradition. Is that true? Yes, that's true. The, the emerald tablets um, carry a, a synopsis of the philosophy behind alchemy, that there is kind of a vertical axis of reality that's related above and below, or, or heaven and earth, however you want to look at it, that uh, spirit or energy is coalesced into the world as we know it. It's very similar to quantum mechanics. I'm sure Teresa's been talking about that, uh, with the view that uh, energy condenses into matter in that relationship. So um, the alchemists early on had this idea of energy. They, they call it by different names, sulfur, most, most uh, usually because of the fiery characteristics of sulfur and the energetic uh, properties of sulfuric acid and ideas like that. So they didn't use our terms, but they, they knew these ideas centuries before we came to discover them ourselves, and, and uh, that has been attributed by nearly every alchemist down through the ages to the Emerald Tablet. 
and the wisdom and the secret formula, the chemical formula that's contained in it, the spiritual formula that's contained in it, and uh, it's uh, it's an amazing document uh, as, as far as being a synthesis of what alchemy is about. Right, but I mean, when I've read the Emerald Tablets, and I have a copy of it, maybe it's your copy, but it, there's a sort of a mystery to it. They they say there's this element that's very common, that I think it says poor people have more of an abundance of it than rich people. I mean, it's a sort of, uh, what are these, what is this key, what is that, what is the Philosopher's Stone what, that you feel? What is that key ingredient um, that the Emerald Tablets refer to that it seems like a mystery? I think that key ingredient is consciousness. Uh, the uh, alchemists viewed consciousness as a force in nature, and they believed it could be added to the experiments and added to the transformations in order to guide it. But it was kind of the idea that we have nowadays about focusing the light of consciousness to create things, um, and that's been presented in a lot of different mystery traditions. But uh, I think that's the basic key. I'm, yeah. I'm interested in what you're saying about... Um, you know, consciousness being that key ingredient that that the Emerald Tablets refers to. It's uh, it is the idea of um, using a purified state of consciousness um, to condense that energy or that that light of consciousness to use it to focus the energy. In other words, the alchemists believed thousands of years ago, all the way back to ancient Egypt, that uh, there was a connection between our mind and reality, and how. Um, reality condenses around us. It's not that, that uh, in some traditions you see this silly notion that, you know, your thoughts become real uh, just by thinking them over and over again. That's not the idea, really. It's more about uh, a purified state of consciousness, uh, where you're at the level uh, or into the above, as the alchemist would say, and as the Emerald Tablet teaches, uh, that you can project that energy, fashion it with the light of your purified, focused thoughts into... Um, into a reality out of a situation and the alchemist believes uh, that this could also be materialized in reality. The Philosopher's Stone uh, can be interpreted and has been uh, as a state of consciousness simply um, that changes uh, changes reality uh, by thought and it's not uh, it's not something um, that's secret. I think it's something that can be learned by everyone. I think it's been expressed on the planet before and different advanced uh, individuals and avatars and gurus uh, in different traditions. Um, but what's great about alchemy is the way it ties together all these traditions into a kind of a common language. You can, you can find terms for phosphor stone and for um, the magic of alchemy in all different traditions, uh, east and west. And I think that's what Teresa was talking about as far as quantum physics. Are you, are you still with us, Teresa? Yep, I'm oh. here. Okay. No, just did you have something to add to that? To that, because I think what you're saying about consciousness is very much uh, um, this key to the philosopher's stone. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, you know, if we can start to learn to harness our consciousness to that degree where we can actually create transformations at the quantum level, that's the key to really creating those those transmutations and being able to, to almost like, you know, learn how to mold the matrix itself that the physical world is based on. And one of those things that has been developed through the ages with alchemy is techniques for how mm -hmm. to harness our consciousness because 
there's a key that I think is missing in all this idea of, of the, the power of intention and the law of attraction and so forth, and that is how coherent is your consciousness? How coherent are your thoughts uh, of what yeah. you're trying to attract to you? And uh, unless you've really applied some techniques and some rigor on creating a more coherent state of being and mind within oneself, you're going to have a really hard time truly creating that kind of impact uh, on the world because mm-hmm. of the quantum mechanical interaction between your consciousness, whether you're is subconscious or, you know, conscious and mm-hmm. material world you're trying to affect. So, so al- alchemical tradition has really created a lot of, of techniques for harnessing consciousness. Well, let me ask Dennis about the alchemical um, tradition because as I look through, like, the, the alchemical uh, galleries and see all these very complex drawings, it's, it's quite a process of a focus and it, it, it is that I mean but there's there's specific things that happen when when like the the green lion the white lion the red lion appears I mean they those weren't just uh, metaphors they were actually states states of matter weren't they oh absolutely um, the alchemists when they spoke of their uh, well in drawings and their symbols and ciphers um, they were usually interpreting it on, on three different levels. On some physical level, uh, in the laboratory, um, describing the reaction of chemicals in the experiment. And on the mental level, what Teresa was talking about, like getting to that state of purified consciousness where you and the experiment become one, so that it's a unified, very focused uh, type of activity. And on the spiritual level, where you're actually bringing down energy and condensing it. And, um, um, for instance, um, the green line you mentioned is a good example. In, in the laboratory, the green line is vitriol, which is um, a wonderful substance that grows on like um, aging limestone rock. If you, if you go to a quarry or some old building site, you'll often see it. It's a really beautiful greenish blue, uh, very thick liquid, uh, just kind of oozing out of the rocks um, to being exposed to sunlight. And if you touch it, it's, it's acid. It's uh, sulfuric acid. And that uh, that green lion uh, has the power to dissolve many, many things. In fact, sulfuric acid was the driving force of the Industrial Revolution. So it was, mm-hmm. to the alchemists, the green lion was like liquid fire, and uh, they use it in a transformation. But in the body, if we're talking about the mental level, the green lion represented a kind of a vitriolic um, anger, a kind of... Uh, being upset with the status quo, kind of being um, upset with yourself and, and your own limitations and wanting to get beyond that. And that, mm. that's why the green line was so very important in the mental meditations and purification of consciousness because it was a way of etching away all the dross that had built up, all the habitual thoughts and, and thoughts that really weren't genuine. And, and that was the, the kind of green line meditation uh, that the alchemists went through. And on a spiritual level, the green line is the very energetic presence of the divine mind itself coming down into matter, the most purified level of the green line. And and when sometimes the alchemist be talking about the green line and you don't know what level he's talking about or she's talking about, um, and read the context. Uh, so in that way, they work, and that's why it's so difficult often to understand the writings 
um, depending on, on what they were doing. They worked on these three levels simultaneously, and that's very difficult um, for us to uh, understand. And I think it's the key to learning these methods of alchemy and actually uh, working on three levels at once. It, it could be body, mind, and spirit, uh, laboratory experiment, something in the physical, something in the mental, and something in the spiritual. To connect all three of these levels, um, which the alchemists also called sulfur, mercury, and salt, being sulfur being the energetic presence uh, and uh, salt being the compound of the physical state of the body and uh, mercury being the light of consciousness itself. So those are three more key words that you can always count on um, being present in an alchemical experiment. They often talk about the sulfur of this or the mercury of that, and well, that's exactly what it's referring to. Um, the key there is that sulfur, as I mentioned earlier, is energy. Uh, they really didn't have a word for energy, but because of the characteristics of sulfur or brimstone, uh, they're associated with energy. And then uh, salt, of course, is matter uh, and uh, mass and body and created things. And uh, mercury is mind. Um, the, the connection between the two, the mid-level, the, the between the alchemist himself, uh, his own consciousness and his body, um, being able to transform things. So what we've got there is energy, matter, and light, really, and it's the same thing in the universe, universal equation uh, E equals MC squared. It's mm -hmm. kind of that the alchemists sensed that that was the basic uh, triplicity of the universe, that that was the basic, what they call the tree of prima, or the embedded three principles that are, that are used everywhere. So uh, we try to access those principles in alchemical meditation. Oh, I and this is where the idea of a Hermes Trismegistus comes in, the Hermes who mastered those three levels of, uh, of existence. Isn't that exactly. true? Christ's greatest Hermes uh, in the Emerald Tablet. Yeah. He wrote the Emerald Tablet, and you can, you can pick these out in the Emerald Tablet. Uh, um, like I said, every alchemist had an interpretation of the tablet, from Isaac Newton all the way back to um, uh, Menopause from, from, um, from ancient Egypt. They all... Hmm had their own interpretation and their own um, use for the old tablet, and it was usually interpreted on three levels, as a, some type of physical process and a mental process and a spiritual process. But but people have there were there were great alchemists who have reached the mastery of these three levels, right, and have um, achieved uh, I would say a level of enlightenment because of this process. Absolutely, and that 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 is what the, the old tablet calls the the pattern of the universe or the or the hidden pattern that's revealed in alchemy and what is passed down in alchemy. And it's a, it's a pattern of transformation that uh, can be seen all around us. It's usually considered to be a seven-step process, uh, uh, and there's uh, analogies all over the place in alchemy. The planetary uh, correspondences that, that start with Saturn and progress towards the sun, um, mm. Saturn being lead and then Jupiter being tin, um, Mars being iron, Venus copper, and then Mercury, of course, quicksilver, and uh, the Sun and Moon finally, the final stage is silver and gold. So when they talk of the planetary uh, correspondences, they actually are talking about the metal, metallic correspondences, and they're actually talking about the uh, human temperament, the correspondences of the metals that are in us, uh, our copper, which is our loving communicative spirit and, um, and our iron, which is our aggressive or, or masculine component or our rationality, if you will. Um, 
and then the, the, the leaden part of us that doesn't want to change, that mm. uh, is habitual in darkness and um, an explosion of Jupiter uh, energies and, and see a more social presence and a more sexual presence in the world. So each one of them, each one of these things has these meanings that you arrive at if you don't have oral teachings or, or conferences to go to, you pick these up in the drawings and you meditate on these drawings. Um, the Latin phrase, or et labor, is exactly how the alchemists work. You know, pray, meditate, and work physically to do the work physically. Um, because there's a lot of allusions in those drawings to the sun and the moon and water and fire, and, and there's something about a direct connection to nature in... You know, it's not just about meditating and drawing, but somehow it seems like the, the alchemist is compelled to be in nature as part of his process of, of transformation. You are so right. I mean, really hit the nail on the head there because um, there was an absolute connection between alchemy and nature. In fact, that goes back to the origins of alchemy when, uh, well, the origins of mankind, really. When, when we were in nature, we were totally connected to nature, we were part of nature. And what that consisted of was all natural things, trees and soil and, and plants and, and animals. And what made the difference, what, what, where the origins of alchemy came from, was when man discovered the metals, discovered mm -hmm. the hidden in all these blasé-looking rocks everywhere, or magical compounds that they, through their craft and through following the same seven steps we're talking about, could refine these ores and bring them out of the... The, the stones, and that became a secret craft, and, and right there was the origin of alchemy. And the alchemists always go back to nature to learn the lessons of nature, whether they're working with plants, whether they're working with the metals, uh, and whether they're working with themselves. And there's a very much a silent uh, connection that's hard to describe with nature. I, I sometimes wonder if being in nature is what the oral teachings are all about, the, the unspeakable part of alchemy. Well, well, it is, I think, because, I mean, um, it is part of nature. But when you said metal, something clicked for me in the sense that metal is a man's ability to extract nature as a tool. And what do you think happened to the consciousness of man when they discovered the, the use of metal? Because something seemed to have shifted and uh, a maturing of, of man's uh, ability to use nature at that point. Exactly, and we can really tie in all the things we've been talking about to that moment in time when, when man discovered the metals, because the metals, like nothing else on this planet, yeah. uh, have transformed it, you know. Imagine being in a world without metals, and that is exactly the period uh, when the metals were discovered um, in time that the legend of the Emerald Tablet originates, that it was actually like a gift that some text even said fell from the heavens or came into mankind's position on how to extract the essences of matter, which were the metals, the alchemists, and how to how to work with those essences and look for essences in themselves, in nature, and in spirit. But so, what do you think um, shifted in the consciousness? I mean, so man was thinking one way, and then they discovered this metal. What was the the change in the way he related to the, we related to the world? What was that? that we were no longer uh, part of nature, but we could actually control nature. We weren't at the, the winds of nature anymore, but there were parts of nature that we could control. And right there you have the essence of science being originated, 
um, and also the, the uh, origins of civilization and all that, and all relationships to the metals. Uh, it all originated with that idea that there were things that man could do, that there were crafts and tools that man could use to transform the planet. And I mean, it started with the Iron Age and Bronze Age, and we went through these these ages, which are very much related to the type of consciousness that was on the planet at the time. And right now, the alchemists would say that we're kind of in the uh, Copper Age. Uh, we're finally leaving the Iron Age of aggression all over the planet. And there, there were prophecies from Hermes himself about this, that we would go through these stages, and that the Iron Age would be a warring period full of masculine consciousness, whereas the dawning of the Copper Age, which is related to the procession of the equinoxes in you know, 2012 and all this, these ideas, too, is that this new age or that this new metallic archetype that come into expression on the planet as copper has. Copper is the basis of um, the internet and communication. Oh, yeah, wires. All the know, coppers wire. that wire the planet are so The whole world is wired, and it's wired with, with copper. Uh, copper. Yeah. And uh, yeah, copper amazing. is changing the planet now. And we can help that process by becoming more copper, by recognizing copper. And that's what's happening. I think you can see it in in movements uh, like the Alchemy Conference and the Modern Mystery School and the Alchemy Guild and all these many, many groups that are spiritually orientated and want to spread their teachings as opposed to the groups that want to keep their teachings secret. That spreading the teachings as copper, wanting to hold them secret as a weapon or as a power of their own, that is iron. So that transition is taking place too, and uh, I just hope it continues. <laughs> well, what planet is associated with copper? Venus. And, um, so it's love. It's very much a feminine love. type of consciousness, but it, uh, it's different from the moon. The moon is kind of a higher feminine presence. Um, mm -hmm. Venus is a down-to-earth, um, prolific type uh, presence that gives birth to many different uh, metals. In fact, uh, the alchemist called copper the harlot of the metals because it forms compounds and just about uh, any, uh. any metal that came its way. <laughs> And so one more like question, that. because we just have to yeah. wrap up. Is, is, this, oh, okay. is this your personal practice as a spiritual practice, being an alchemist? Oh, absolutely. Yes, working with the with the metals uh, on all levels. I, you know, I purify metals uh, in the lab and in myself, and uh, you know, on the spiritual level too. And of course, the goal is gold, and and, uh, and that golden state is the philosopher's stone, and really that level is where it all comes together. Hmm. Yeah, let's do another sh uh, show at some point about um, alchemy and, and the whole history. Uh, this is fascinating. Teresa, are you still with us? I am. I've just been, like, fascinated by the conversation and listening to it all. So you are um, uh, a great yeah. interviewer, Alan, and a uh, very yeah. engaging host. So. Thank well, you. thank you both. This, I mean, it's a subject I've been really interested in, and to meet um, actual practicing alchemists is very exciting. So <laughs> tell us a, just a little bit about the conference before we sign off. Um, Teresa, you want to, or, or Dennis? Um. Sure. So, so the conference is happening at the Los Angeles Convention Center October 23rd through 25th. And our uh, our theme this year is the world of transformation. You know, creating change through alchemy in the many different aspects of life. It's it's going to be the biggest gathering of alchemists in over that's open to the public in over 500 years. And we've got this, this fantastic lineup of, of speakers 
and uh, activities and entertainment and exhibits and all kinds of opportunities to come and explore. And, you know, the exhibit area is free and open to anybody to come and check out. And then with the talks, um, people can come either just for a single, like a keynote speaker, or just a workshop, or they can come for a whole day, or they can come for three days. And there's different pricing based on, you know, how much they want to participate in. So there's something there for everybody. And uh, we're really looking forward to creating just a, a synergistic coming together of, of many different minds and people and, and modalities and so forth to, to bring out me back to the public. So it's very exciting, and um, Dennis will be there as well. Do you have anything to say, Dennis, before we... Uh, no, I'm looking forward to the conference. I've been working on these conferences for three years now, and uh, um, they're, they're growing more and more. My colleagues from all over the world are coming to join us, and, and Teresa's really been helpful and instrumental, in fact, in expanding the idea of what alchemy is and uh, bringing it out into the world more. Um, more and more copper. <laughs> so it's a common gold event, and I wouldn't miss it if I had to cross to it. It's coming to Well, that's exciting. So the website is alchemyconference.com, and I've been talking to um, Dennis ha uh, William Hauk and Teresa Ibis. Actually, Ibis was thought who brought the emerald tablets to um, Egypt, wasn't it? Wasn't uh, that is correct. <laughs> right. But thank you both for being a guest here on New Realities. And if you want to reach me, uh, my name is Alan Steinfeld, and I um, can be reached at newrealities at earthlink.net or check my website, newrealities.com. Thank you for listening, and thank, thank, you, thank you both. Thank you so much. Great thank you, Alan. Okay. Yeah.